Welcome to Curated Conversation, a podcast discussing issues related to equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. I'm your host, Shaliza Jamal, founder of Curated Leadership, an organization that fosters partnerships with leadership teams, employees, and individuals to develop their knowledge in the areas of equity and diversity to build inclusive communities. Today, I'm joined by a good friend and colleague, Heather Watts. Heather Watts is Mohawk and Anishinaabe from Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. Education has been a central part of her work over the past 10 years, graduating from Syracuse University with a degree in inclusive education, Columbia University Teachers College with a degree in literacy coaching, and working as an elementary school teacher in New York City and in Rochester, New York. Heather has studied at the Harvard Graduate School of Education in the Education Policy and Management Program and graduated with her EdM in 2019. Heather is currently a third-year doctoral student at the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, University of Toronto, in the Social Justice Education Program. She served as an elected member of the OISE Council and sat on the Equity Committee for the first two years of her studies. She has recently been awarded a Joseph Armand Bombardier Canada Graduate Scholarship through the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, a highly competitive national award competition. Heather's work centers reconciliation and reclamation of Indigenous ways of knowing in modern-day education systems. Professionally, Heather is the Acting Education Manager for the Six Nations Lifelong Learning Task Force, researching and engaging with the community around draft recommendations for a lifelong learning education system grounded in Haudenosaunee languages and culture. She also works as a training officer in the environmental sector, developing and implementing learning modules related to the topics of reconciliation, identity and privilege, as well as indigenous worldviews of land. Heather has a passion for engaging and work at the intersection of curriculum and reconciliation and is delighted to share space with you all as we deepen our knowledge of the treaties that govern Turtle Island. Huge congratulations on the Joseph Armand Bombardier Canada Graduate Scholarship, Heather. That is a big deal. Welcome. I'm so excited to speak with you today, and I'll pass the mic over to you. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Shaliza, for the introduction and for inviting me uh, to be here and to share space with you today. Uh, always a pleasure to, to have a conversation with you about, you know, things we really, really care about um, and, and always loving to, to have those invitations from you. So thank you. Um, just in terms of introducing myself in the way that I have been taught how, uh, I'm going to introduce myself in uh, Ganyangeha, or the Mohawk language. Sego sewa goego, gahandagi ni yungets, ganyangeha ga ni'i waskulewage. Good day or hello, everyone, whether you're tuning in in the morning, afternoon. I don't know, maybe it's bedtime and you're tuning in. Um, my name is uh, Gahandage, which in Mohawk uh, loosely translates to uh, She is in the Meadow. And um, my, my English name is Heather Watts, and I am uh, Mohawk and Bear Clan from Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. And uh, that's where I am. Uh, I'm tuning in uh, to, uh, to this podcast from today, uh, from Six Nations of the Grand River Territory. And I uh, also want to acknowledge uh, our neighbors, uh, the Mississaugas uh, of the credit as well. And um, again, yeah, really delighted to be here and excited to jump into the topic of uh, truth and reconciliation. Thank you so much, Heather. Now, you've lived in both Canada and the United States. How does all your experience come together in your research on curriculum and reconciliation? How is it similar? How is it different? How are things in both those nations? Great. So uh, this, is a, this is always an interesting question. So I lived in the U.S. for about 10 years. Um, as you can hear from my bio, uh, I did most of my post-secondary schooling there, uh, first in Syracuse, New York, and then in New York City. And then I worked for a little bit in New York City and in Rochester, New York, and then moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts uh, to pursue a, another master's degree. And what I always encountered um, whether it was, you know, 
being a learner, um, engaging with with curriculum or learning how to become a teacher, or when I was a teacher uh, in in charge of curriculum development. And, you know, it came to, you know, the topic of, of Indigenous histories, where it has kind of the more common term in the United States would be Native American or American Indian histories. Um, it, uh, it was always a really interesting conversation because there was just so much that was unknown. Um, largely talking about indigeneity in the United States uh, was something that was very, very new uh, for classmates that I was with, uh, for students that I, that I worked with, uh, very limited, uh, limited knowledge. And, um, you know, in, in the States, there are, you know, kind of significant points, I guess, throughout the year that I think assist in developing um, this kind of skewed maybe uh, view of, of indigeneity, such as Thanksgiving, uh, of course. Uh, that's, I don't think, a, a surprise to anybody who might be listening. Um, you know, the, the whole story of the first Thanksgiving, right, we know is is inaccurate um, and, and is completely skewed in the way that um, it, it is typically typically has been taught. Like obviously things are changing. People are wanting to unlearn and, and engage um, with, with what is that truth, uh, which is a great, great move. Um, and in, in addition to that, I would say also Columbus Day, uh, which now has been uh, reclaimed and renamed by by a lot of places in the U.S. as Indigenous Peoples Day, um, you know, is another kind of point in, um, you know, the American context or American society where there is this, I guess, skewed view of Indigenous peoples um, that become that becomes developed, right? Uh, this this view of um, you know, indigenous people kind of just being completely, you know, take taken over, um, you know, is, is something that that comes through in Columbus Day. Um, other things I think that were a little bit different uh, in comparison is, uh, you know, we, we know in the United States, uh, we're, we're talking huge population, right, huge population and um, indigenous communities are, are very rural. Uh, you know, given where uh, I am now at Six Nations, I can get to downtown Toronto in just over an hour, depending on who's driving. My dad could probably get there uh, a little bit quicker than I am, uh, or I could. And that, that, like having that close proximity to one of the major, major hubs, uh, most po- one of the most populated, uh, you know, places in Canada, um, it is not necessarily the same type of context in the United States. Because I, I remember going to school and having people say, "Well, I've never met someone who's Native American, never even seen someone who's Native American before." I can remember, uh, you know, being a student at Syracuse and being in my sorority. And when I began, you know, sh- actually like sharing about my indigeneity with some of my sorority sisters. And uh, I remember introducing myself in Mohawk, much as I did at the beginning of this podcast. And one of them just looked at me and said, like, wait, you all have your own languages? And like, for me, it was just like, what? Of course we do. Like this, like, what did you think? Like at point of contact, we were just like speaking English over here. Like, no, of course we had our own languages, which are completely tied into our worldview, to our, our identity. And of course, all rooted in land, right? And our, our love and, and care and stewardship of land. And so when I think about Canada, it was actually when I got into the program at University of Toronto, I, I remember breathing a sigh of relief, knowing that when I would come to the U of T, uh, that topics of reconciliation, of decolonization, of indigenous ways of knowing were going to be priority areas of research and learning at the university. Um, because the landscape in which we talk about indigeneity in Canada is more prevalent, is more well-known. Uh, the proximity that Canadians have to Indigenous peoples in Canada um, is greater uh, than in the United States, in my experience. So uh, I'm, yeah, very, very different experiences, I think, taught me taught me a lot about working with folks who have been raised with a very limited uh, knowledge and exposure to Indigenous histories, um, and and how you how you encounter that, and how you bring those folks along for the ride, because 
Um, you know, I think I've, I've come to learn throughout my experience that, you know, we are, we are all in, in some way or another, you know, impacted by, you know, the colonial agenda or the colonial project. And when it comes to education, uh, you know, the way we've been taught and what we have been taught in our curriculum is not decided by us as children when we step into those classrooms. And so when we are raised and we are taught with, with a very specific agenda, and that becomes a part of our orientation to the world and maybe how we see Indigenous communities or Indigenous peoples, um, my work is a lot about, okay, well, let's recognize that and let's name that and let's combat it, right? How do we unlearn? How do we relearn now as, you know, adults uh, who are wanting to step forward in reconciliation, how do we forge a path forward and, and learn more about that truth? Thank you, Heather. I, I really appreciate everything you said there because I too, you know, having studied in the States, I always wondered why Indigenous issues, Indigenous folks are not forefront. And I think that is changing. I think, you know, you've been instrumental in that, I think, at Harvard as well. But I always wonder that. So I really appreciate, you know, talking about unlearning our orientation, but also the proximity to folks. And, and that is, I think, a big, big thing in, in the states where you do have rural and urban centers and big cities um, and you have reserves like, sort of in, in cities that are or in towns rather that are very far from city centers, which plays a role. And I think for me, I'm seeing a lot of recognition now in Canada, too, because Prior to, I'd say a year ago, there was really Orange Shirt Day, right? So September 30th, for those folks who don't know, is Orange Shirt Day, uh, a day where we recognize uh, over 150,000 Indigenous children who endured the residential school system and the intergenerational trauma that felt today. And now, as we know, it's been declared a federal holiday uh, called the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. But I think until recently this was also seen as you know a day that's happening in school where folks wear orange very much similar to where folks wear pink for the day of anti-bullying and so you know now that this september 30th has become a declared day of national truth and reconciliation what does that mean for you and maybe we can even define what you think reconciliation means right yeah i um i'm i'm really hopeful about the day and i when i think about you know a national day for truth and reconciliation uh, i see it as an intentional um you know place uh, for us to take that moment or several moments to sit in reflection right? To think about what it is that we do know, what it is that we do not know, and think about how we move forward uh, to be in better relation uh, with with one another. And, and for me, when I think about reconciliation, uh, that's what I think about. I think about relationship uh, and not only being in good relation uh, with, with other, other humans, but being in good relation with ourselves, right? Um, when, when we're, you know, sitting, sitting alone uh, with, with our own thoughts, are we kind to ourselves? How do we, you know, see our positionality, see our place in, in society? Um, in addition, uh, being in good relation uh, with, with nature and with land, right? For me, that's what reconciliation is all about, is, is being in good, good relationship. And uh, there's this elder that I really, really respect. And Shaliza, you know exactly who I'm going to talk about, um, Chief Dr. Uh, Robert Joseph. And uh, his way that he defines reconciliation is to find peace within. And uh, I just think that's that's so so beautiful, um, and and what he is kind of hitting on there is the point that reconciliation is also about healing, and how we all are coming into you know needing to to heal from different positions from different standpoints, and and sometimes that healing will require a group effort, or you know kind of taking one another up hand in hand and supporting one another, or, or sometimes it's more of an individual journey. Uh, sometimes we may be helping heal the land, right? And and so what I'm really thinking about when it's 
comes to reconciliation is thinking about healing and uh, and thinking about being being in good relationship and how those two things are intertwined and you know i i've been asked a couple times about you know orange shirt day as well as you know the new uh, holiday um national day for truth and reconciliation and whether or not this is just another performance whether or not this is just another symbol uh or, or it's performative and and what i think is that's really up to us right that's really up to us with what it is we decide to do or not do um with this holiday right um and and also knowing and, and you know this Shaliza, and like probably preaching to the choir in terms of uh, any educators who are tuning in that you know we don't only reflect and celebrate and unlearn and relearn about uh you know different communities or, or different races or different religions or different um you know sexual orientations uh what what have you on specific days or on specific months but i think also having that reminder that yes we do need to prioritize reflecting and 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 almost kind of this reflexivity which which i think combines reflecting as well as action uh, that comes from those reflections or that stems from those reflections on um, on the truth uh, as well as reconciliation. Yeah, and I think that's what I was going to say to you because I know you and I have had many conversations about these days that are meant to uh, be for reflection, but they end up being these isolated days in school when in actual fact, the learning, the reflecting has to be 365 days a year all our lives right and that was kind of what I wanted to ask you was you know how would you like to see the day spent and I think you answer that that it's a lot of self-reflection and self-learning and if you haven't done this work for our listeners out there maybe it's a day you start and if for folks who have already been learning maybe it's a day that you continue whether that is you know deepening your understanding of the land that you're on whether it's really learning about the truth and reconciliation calls to action from the commission, um, any other uh, things that you want to share that folks might be able to do on this day uh, and continue for the rest of the year. Right. I think there, there are a lot of events uh, that are happening in across, you know, municipalities um, at local friendship centers, uh, maybe neighboring indigenous communities that would be really interesting to, to look up and, and see how it is you might support it. Right. Maybe it's supporting it from afar. Maybe it's tuning into a zoom um, and, and listening to a speaker or listening to a survivor share their story. Uh, maybe there, there is a charity that can be supported. Um, I think there are a number of different ways that folks can, can show up not only on uh, September 30th, but, uh, you know, throughout the year. And, um, you know, maybe, maybe it's, you know, picking up a book from an Indigenous author and, and starting to dive into that. Maybe it's starting to look at, well, how do I curate and craft my own land acknowledgement, right, that is deeply personal uh, to my own relationship to the land, my own personal journey, um, and thinking about my place in reconciliation moving forward, right? Uh, because, uh, Something I'm very, very passionate about is is doing that work of, of land acknowledgement creation, um, and and not just you know simply reading the script uh, that may be on the company's uh, you know uh, shared drive or something, right? And and really uh, inserting your own personal reflections and journeys into that. So I think you know as you suggested, you know read it, reading the TRCs, you know calls to action, uh, I think is something that's also really, really um, important. And, and just really spending time in that that truth, right? Um, and, and learning more and then starting to think about, well, what commitments, uh, you know, can, can I make as a person going forward, maybe professionally, maybe personally, right? And, and I think, all the while, you know, for those who who are blessed, uh, you know, to to have uh, young ones in your life, whether you know you are an, an auntie or an uncle, or you're a parent or a guardian or an older brother, older sister, sibling, what have you. Um, how are we bringing along the next generation in the truth and reconciliation journey as well, right? I've had numerous conversations with folks who might say, um, well, kindergarten is too early to be talking about residential schools. It's absolutely not. It's absolutely not too early to be talking about residential schools. You know, obviously there are some uh, some content areas that you that you might not get into uh, with, with a kindergartner versus, you know, speaking with a, a student who is in seventh grade. But 
absolutely students can understand um, you know, these institutions that were created that were masked as schools, you know, they are in schools themselves, but how these schools had a, a different idea or a different agenda behind it. Um, and, and there's absolutely entry points for, you know, children of, of all ages uh, to engage with, uh, with Indigenous histories and uh, not only, uh, you know, histories that involve uh, colonialism as well, I think is something that's important, right? Uh, there are plenty of talks out there, uh, TED Talks. Um, you know, again, I have to make a plug for uh, Chief Dr. <laughs> Robert Joseph because he's just so fabulous. Um, and some of the traditional teachings that he shares online as well. There is so much beauty and so many life lessons um, from indigenous elders out there that that folks can can access as well um, you know to and and those aren't just teachings for indigenous peoples you know those are those are teachings um, that that really uh, you know heal and, and help us all so um, I, I think there's numerous entry points for people uh, which I think is really beautiful um, so no matter where you are on your reconciliation journey, maybe this is the first time you're hearing about truth and reconciliation. There's a place for you, right? There's an entry point for you uh, to, to be on the journey and to come, come into this work. Thank you, Heather. So folks, there's lots of entry points, lots of things you can do personally, professionally, and really let's make this a day where we create greater awareness of Indigenous issues all around and our own learning and unlearning. And now, um, Heather, you've spoken about this many times in this conversation, and I've heard you speak about this a lot, which is the fact that truth needs to inform reconciliation. Can you tell folks uh, what you mean by that? Perfect. Yes. Yeah, so oftentimes when I you know, hear some people talk about truth and reconciliation, um, it, it's very much in the context of, well, what do we do? right? What can we do? How do we make things better? How do we move forward? And, and I think that's great. I think that people are, um, are seeing that there is a disconnect here, right? <laughs> that, that we need to restore relationship, that we need to move forward. And so that intent is, is beautiful. And what I think is really important that to, to support that action and to support that moving forward, learning and, and unlearning, as, as I've said a, a few times already during this podcast, is that needs to inform your action, right? And I don't see it as this linear process either. I see it as something that is cyclical, right? Maybe we, we learn and we unlearn and we do a little bit of that work and that informs an action. And then, you know, we go and we implement that action and then we say, hey, you know what? Um, I feel like I still don't know enough about X. So then you go and you, you learn some more. Maybe you do a little bit more listening. You do a little bit more reading. You do a little bit more maybe getting out into an indigenous uh, friendship center or community and, and, and being with, with folks. And then that informs another action, right? And then they keep building upon one another um, with your own reflection and your own commitment being steadfast and the common threads throughout that circular process. And so that's really the beauty that, that I see. And, um, you know, it was once shared with me by an Anishinaabe elder uh, who was leading a, a workshop on reconciliation. And someone asked, asked him, well, what happens once we've reconciled, once we've reached the end of reconciliation? And uh, his response was more reconciliation, right? Like this, this, doesn't have an end point, right? Because how beautiful might it be when we get to a point in our society where we're just continually trying to make relationship better, right? Where it's like, you know what? I think I can be a better neighbor. You know what? I can think I can be a better community member. And we're literally just trying to improve upon our relationships with ourselves, with others, and with land. And I, I think that would be a really, really beautiful place for us to be. Thank you, Heather. And I think that's really, really informative because that reconciliation, what I'm hearing, is not only about recognizing the truth, but also building ongoing relationships, which is, you know, very key to um, the work that you're doing. And, you know, in Canada over the past few months, Indigenous communities have had to relive the trauma of residential schools with the discovery of hundreds of unmarked graves. And this has really sparked, uh, you know, Canadians nationally to really pay attention to Indigenous rights, to pay attention to 
the horrific history of assimilation and residential schools and the Indian Act. And so that's one part of this truth of the reconciliation. But you also mentioned this aspect of healing um, that Dr. Bob Joseph talked about. And can you tell us a bit more about that healing part? And how do we balance that truth with that healing in the act of reconciliation, both for Indigenous folks and non-Indigenous folks? And so I think what I would, you know, say to just start off, I guess, this question about um, of the discoveries of, of children, right? The discoveries of, of children who were in many cases, you know, forcibly removed from their families and, and never returned home. Um, you know, when I, when I think about that, I think about um, family bloodlines, um, you know, possibly, possibly uh, ending right with, with those uh, with those children um, and and I also really reflect on you know personally in, in our own uh, culture in, in Haudenosaunee context um, you know I'll share this with you that you know when when a loved one um, you know passes away and, and goes to the spirit world there is protocol uh, that we are to follow um, including uh, a 10-day feast right feasting uh, for that loved one and and as well as you know an, an annual uh, ceremony and and feast for that loved one and so uh, you know with with the recent discoveries of, of these children and finally hit feeling that that protocol for for those different communities maybe can finally be had um, I, I think is something that is, that I've been reflecting uh, a lot upon, right? We're not just uh, we're not just talking about like g- graveyards being discovered. Um, this is something that I think a lot of people, a lot of Canadians, a lot of folks that I've spoken to are really struggling with um, because it is horrific. Um, is horrific and and for you know a lot of uh you know folks that uh you know acquaintances or classmates that i might have um who are newer to canada it's it's not the nation that um or it's not the narrative i guess of of the nation that they kind of envisioned or had in mind right and and i think that's that's a lot for folks to deal with i think oftentimes canada gets positioned as um you know the the kind of friendly, like younger sibling of the United States or something like that, or maybe the friendly cousin, maybe we're not a sibling, I'm not sure. But um, the friendlier version uh, of the United States. And, um, you know, we get positioned, you know, in that way a lot. And and so I think uh, for folks to realize uh, more truth in, in relation to our history as it relates to Indigenous peoples, I think is really um, disorienting for a lot of people. And, and I've, you know, had conversations with folks that are like, why didn't we learn about this? Why didn't we learn about this? And they're angry. They're angry that their education system didn't teach them about this, you know, taught them everything left and right when it came to, um, you know, other histories of other, um, you know, of, you know, the war of 1812 and talking about Great Britain and New France. And, but why did we not learn about um, the dispossession of indigenous lands? Why did we not learn about residential schools? Why is it that I have to go and take an elective in university to begin learning about these topics? Like people are upset and people are are angry. And um, and when I when I think about that healing, it kind of comes back to a point I made earlier um, that you know. The colonial project or the colonial agenda has has touched everyone um, in in one way, shape, or form, and and one way that it has touched us all is the narrative, right? Is the narrative and, and how people are positioned or not positioned within that narrative, right? So if we're talking about the story of Canada, right, um, things that are omitted from the story of Canada for the purpose of depicting Canada as the friendly relative, um, really work to 
to remove indigenous peoples and and that that history of indigenous indigenous peoples and indigenous struggle and indigenous triumph triumph um, from from the narrative of Canada. Yeah, and I think it's very intentional, right? That erasure is intentional, and there's something called angel syndrome, and it's you know Canada has this angel syndrome that oh we're not like this, there's no racism, we're better than this. All of these narratives uh, play into the erasure and the intentional positioning and the power and the privilege that you know settlers have created here on Turtle Island to erase the history of Indigenous folks and to erase the genocide, to erase residential schools and the horrific acts that were committed there. So Heather, we've talked about the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. We talked about reflection, both personal, professionally. And folks always ask me, and I'd love your insight as well, in your opinion, how can non-Indigenous folks engage in active and ongoing allyship and solidarity? Great. Um, no, so I think that's a great question. And, you know, first and foremost, what I would say is to really, when, when wanting to engage in that with, with Indigenous communities, um, to really ask Indigenous communities, um, you know, for, for the lead on that, right? How how can I be of support? Um, what are priorities that, that you feel, you know, I, I could support in? Because, you know, I think it, it's important to, to note that not every priority um, that an Indigenous community has um, is, is for kind of everyone to chip in upon, right? Um, you know, when we're talking about language revitalization, you know, that's something uh, that, uh, that elders, knowledge keepers, language speakers, and Indigenous communities uh, are going to be working on um, you know, in their own context, are there ways that allies may support? Maybe you know, monetarily, of course. Um, maybe through advocacy, yes. Um, and so, I think really asking uh, Indigenous peoples, or maybe it's it's an, an Indigenous community that is kind of local to to where you find yourself situated, uh, allowing them to to take the lead and and knowing that allyship with that indigenous community might not translate to the next indigenous community. It might not be the same way that you show up for another historically marginalized group or another historically underrepresented group, right? And that allyship looks different um, for different groups of, of folks. And um, and I think that's a really kind of important point here is that when we're talking about indigenous peoples, uh, you know, that that's very a very, very big umbrella term, like talking like a big rainstorm, like big umbrella. And, um, and that, you know, we do have these three kind of subcategories on which, you know, we were, are referred to as, you know, First Nations, uh, Métis and Inuit. And then even, even underneath those smaller umbrellas, like there are still nations that exist under there. And so um, for, for me, one of the biggest, biggest understandings that I think was illuminated uh, for myself as, as an Indigenous woman when I started to learn more about treaties and treaty making was that when treaties were agreed upon um, or, or, or crafted or worked upon, they were entered into on a nation-to-nation -nation basis. And so when we're talking about Indigenous peoples, we are talking about nations, right? We are not talking about interest groups, we are talking about nations, and I think that's a really, really key understanding that folks um, that fo that folks you know need to kind of wrap, wrap their heads around is that we're talking about nations, right? We're, we're not talking about an interest group, and uh, and and those nations are, are different, right? While we may have you know similar worldview, similar appreciation and love and care and respect for Mother Earth. For, for land, uh, you know, there, there are differences, right, uh, among, uh, you know, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities, and even, you know, un underneath those umbrellas. And I, I think that's a really key understanding for folks, um, is that we're talking about nations. And, uh, and so when, when I think about allyship, right, uh, you know, I, I think about, well, if we were to uh, want to be allies with, you know, a specific country, right? We wouldn't look at two separate countries and say, okay, well, our allyship needs to look the same, 
for those two countries because that's just what it is. We wouldn't do that, right? We would think, okay, well, this is this country and this is their their context, so that we're, we're going to engage in allyship that way. And then for country B, right, we would say, okay, well, this is their context, this is their history, um, you know, these are their priorities, so this is how we engage in allyship with them. So when thinking about indigenous peoples, um, indigenous nations, I should say, uh, then we need to have that kind of same approach, right, and and be thinking about it in that way. And and one thing I'll I just have to say this as, you know, it's coming up for me as I'm thinking is the phrase, our indigenous peoples, uh, is something that, uh, makes me cringe, uh, when I hear it. And while, while I, I presume that the intent is, is to make it sound like, well, no, in, indigenous peoples, we're, we're talking about all of us. We're talking about inclusivity here. Um, the term our can be, you know, very patronizing, right? And indigenous peoples do not belong um, to the quote unquote uh, nation state, colonial nation state of Canada, right? Um, indigenous peoples are nations. And, uh, and so I think that's, uh, that's another really key understanding. It's not so much what people should do. It's more like what not to do. It's one of those things. It's like, this is what you should do by not doing this. <laughs> Don't refer to indigenous people as ours. <laughs> yeah. It's so important because I think I've heard that, especially in education um, with a lot of equity seeking groups, it's like our, our, but like, is it really yours? Like, are you just putting your, your power, your privilege and your ownership over people? Uh, but you know, you said some really important things. And I think for me, you know, when I was looking at the Canadian Atlas of Indigenous Peoples or Indigenous Peoples of Canada, I forgot the name of it now, but I think you and I were looking through that and there was hundreds of languages, hundreds of nations that are kind of put into this umbrella of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, which is also problematic. But I think that that's a very important point, right? That you have to get to know the communities that are situated close to where you live or that are, um, you know, uh, historically or traditionally on the land that you are currently living on and figure out, okay, what are their priorities? Cause it might be different. And, you know, maybe that's monetary, maybe that's advocacy, but really important, as you said, is working with community, not for community and asking questions mm -hmm. um, and not conflating priorities um, and different communities, ideas of what, for example, reconciliation means, cause it might mean something different. And so that's a really good point too, you know, and here I'm asking your opinion and that's, you know, yours and other folks might have a different kind of idea and opinion. Right. I think it's really important for us to be open to that. Right. And I think one more thing I would add is, you know, there are obviously we, we know, right. With, with, you know, seeing on the news that there are, um, you know, reclamations that there are, uh, you know, protests and, and whatnot. And, you know, the kind of these, these physical, um, you know, acts of, of, you know, indigenous peoples really, um, you know, fighting, fighting for, you know, their inherent rights, that what, what my, my fear is when I, I see that and, and people are talking about allyship is that, you know, folks show up to those things, right? Folks, maybe let's say go, go show up at, um, at a land claim site or, or folks go show up at a rally or a protest um, and, and not having sat with that kind of truth component or not having listened to maybe that first nations or that, that community's uh, leadership or, or, you know, listened to how it is they want to approach a specific issue and inserting their own strat like strategy for wanting to achieve an end result. Um, and that actually, um, undermining what it is that that community or that first nation or is trying to do right because um we know uh that you know and this is no jab at the media it's just how it is that capturing things that um that are you know that are violent or that are like in your face or is something that's always going to make the news right and so when you know folks who are attempting to be an allyship show up there and are conducting themselves maybe um, not in accordance with that indigenous community's protocol 
for how they're conducting themselves, then there's a disconnect there, right? For me, you know, this kind of this phrase comes into mind of, are you there for the cause or for the chaos, right? Are, are, are you there to promote the cause? Or are you there to promote chaos, right? Um, because don't, don't get me wrong, like there, there are, you know, certain things that, uh, um, you know, that, I'm going to cut that part out. What, what I was going to, I edited myself out there. Um, but uh, yeah, so I really think folks need to to really think about that uh, when, when showing up to these spaces. Like, have they done the work, right? Have they done the work, um, you know, to, to be there? And, and you know, when, when are, they, are they going to speak on behalf of a community? I think is something also to, to be mindful, um, mindful of, um, because I mean, I even know myself as if I were going and even, you know, my, my neighbors here on Mississaugas of the Credit, right, if there were something going on, um, you know, in particular, you know, in relation to their rights or whatnot, and I showed up in solidarity or support, in no way am I speaking to any kind of media or news outlet um, about my opinion, right? This is about them. This is about, um, you know, the, the Ojibwe or the Anishinaabe, the Mississaugas and the credit. It's not about myself, even as an Indigenous woman, right? Even as someone who does have some family lineage, you know, from that community, right? And, uh, and, and so I think that's something to, to really, to really keep in mind, right? Um, what is centered, what is being prioritized, and have you done that work um, to when you go to show up to, to support indigenous communities. Absolutely, because it can be counterproductive. And I think people don't think of their own self-reflection or their own personal growth and learning as a form of solidarity and allyship, but that actually is because it's really not about speaking for another community. It's about asking, you know, how you can help. And sometimes, like you said, that is just sitting back and being the backup singer, the backup dancer. It's not always the forefront. And, you know, you, you spoke about how every community or every nation of Indigenous people are different, right? And for you, with the upcoming election on September 20th, very soon, what issues are important to you and or your community uh, in this upcoming federal election? Right. So I think there's there's a number of things. Um, you know, there's some things that I don't have, you know, specific um, you know, knowledge of as, as they're, you know, more, more scientific or more technical. Um, but I think there are still priorities non the, nonetheless, um, you know, really thinking about, as we spoke about earlier, right, these 94 calls to action uh, that were released by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and how those are going to be actualized. I think something that is, is something that's really important. Um, at, at one point during, you know, this current administration's um, you know, reign, uh, I, I remember, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau, uh, you know, saying that there was full adoption of the 94 calls to action, which some of them are not federal, right? Some of those calls to action are personal as like just you and I um, or other folks listening to this podcast. Some of them have a more a municipal or, you know, provincial responsibility. And so, you know, to me, when, when I hear that, okay, it's full adoption, you know, we're, we're taking on the full like 94 calls to action, you know, there's some pause for me there um, because it's like, well, did you read them? <laughs> I mean, like, um, and really thinking about, okay, well, um, you know, what is, you know, the government's role um, in prioritizing those, those calls to action, right? And and it's one thing to, to you know, verbally, um, you know, support it. And, and I think that's great. And I think that's a step, um, you know, steps and entry points, those things are really important to me. Um, and then thinking about, well, how are those actualized? And, you know, kind of in a, in a similar breath, I, I also think about, you know, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, right? And, um, and, how how is that going to be actualized, right? When when thinking about uh, you know our context here, because there's there's a lot there, right? When we're talking about um, uh, when we're talking about the engagement of, of indigenous communities um, on you know on specific issues, I, I think there there's a lot that will need to be thought of in terms of reframing how it is Indigenous communities are, are included in decision-making um, processes, you know, across Canada. And, uh, and again, not just this kind of like 
uh, wholehearted, like, yep, we're, we're taking it on, we're adopting it, and we're embracing it. Um, but what does that mean? Right? What does that actually mean? And are Indigenous communities involved in even imagining or deciding or thinking or drafting up how that's going to be actualized, right? Because there needs to be involvement, you know, from the beginning, right? It can't just be something where, you know, a government is saying, okay, well, we're adopting this and this is how it's going to roll out. And then, you know, then comes in, you know, the indigenous communities, right? Indigenous communities need to be involved in that from the beginning. And, um, and so those are, those are two things that, that I think are, are real priorities. In addition, obviously, uh, when, when thinking about climate change, thinking about climate crisis, uh, I think uh, really important um, to be uh, listening to uh, indigenous knowledge keepers, to be listening to community, uh, community leaders, community elders. Um, you know, there's this story and, and I'm just going to really tell an abridged version because I, I, uh, I won't, I'm like retelling it from someone else's retell, but basically, um, you know, there was you know this this national park that was thinking about uh, how it is they were going to to take care of the land, and um, one specific tactic that the indigenous community in that area you know suggested you know the park said you know no no like we're supposed to be conserving the land there's there's no way we would you know burn the grasses in this specific section that's not conservation right that's burning the grasses, but then then comes you know the the, the weather later in the season and it completely destroyed you know the, the grasses in that area because they had not been um, you know like burned or, or taken care of in the way that the indigenous people the people who are indigenous to that area knew how to take care of it and so I think you know really leaning on um, indigenous knowledge right and valuing indigenous knowledge just as much or if not more than we do western science right is something that uh, is very critical at this this moment in history um to to reflect upon and then of course i would be remiss if i did not uh, you know mention land back um as well as self-determination right and, and thinking about well how, how does that look like or or how do we prioritize uh, self-determination, self-governance, um, as well as uh, land reclamation uh, with indigenous peoples? And, and here we're talking about, you know, land that, uh, you know, was not entered into, you know, treaty upon. And so uh, what do those negotiations uh, look like? Right. And and what is what is the priority and really, really listening to to indigenous communities Um you know, uh, you know, something that that always comes up for me when when I think about, you know, driving through, you know, our, our community or other First Nations communities where, you know, you, land is just land and it's just able to just sit there and be land and grow medicine. And, you know, land doesn't always need to be dug up and built upon. Right. Um, land can just exist to just be be beautiful and thrive and and grow those medicines that, that we all so great, greatly um, benefit from and, and appreciate. And so, uh, you know, those are some things I, I really think about um, in terms of priorities, uh, you know, re reconciliation, obviously, being um, being something that, that is of utmost importance uh, in next year, actually, we'll be entering into the United nations uh decade of indigenous languages and uh and you know i'm really excited to to learn more about well what is canada's um approach going to be uh, to support uh, language revitalization and reclamation and i know you know at six nations that's something of, of utmost importance when you know we have six six Haudenosaunee languages here at Six Nations, right? Like Six Nations isn't just a clever name, um, you know, for a First Nation. We're talking about a confederacy of six nations that live here, right? In the most, uh, the most uh, populated uh, community, uh, indigenous community in Canada. And uh, language revitalization is, is something that is uh, at the top of, you know, my, my mind when thinking about my work with the Six Nations Lifelong Learning Task Force, right? And, and how that looks at the early years, at elementary school level, middle school, secondary school, all the way through um, to adults as well as our elders, right? Being able to to engage with language um, and, and reclaim language. And, and I'll be really, really uh, interested to learn more about, uh, you know, how, how, you know, the, the government is going to, to support those efforts. And um, yeah, so I think those are, 
and there's a number there uh, that I mentioned. Um, yeah, in terms of really looking forward to to hear to hearing more about uh, you know up until the twentieth, and then uh, far far past that date as well. Absolutely, it's a destination for sure. And you talked about revitalizing language and schooling. And I know folks are going to ask, you know, what does self-determination and self-government look like? And I know you don't have all the answers, but in your opinion, what might that look like? Uh, is it just the revitalization of languages? Is it, you know, changing the schooling uh, system, not only for folks living on reserves or Indigenous schools, attending Indigenous schools, but for, you know, all students in, in Canada, what might self-determination and self-government look like? Right. And so when thinking specifically about like land back, right, um, you know, something that, you know, I, I really think about is, you know, acknowledging, you know, you know, based on, you know, Aboriginal title, um, you know, an Indigenous nation's right to, to use and manage, uh, you know, those those lands and, and also to reap the economic benefits of, of those lands as well, I think is something that, that I think about um, when it comes to, you know, kind of a more, you know, economic standpoint. And then when thinking about uh, language and thinking about education, so there are a number of, of communities, you know, across Canada uh, that have, um, you know, taken control um, of their, their education system. And, and so they, they have more of that jurisdiction of their, their schools and their community, but largely, like, and, and I say, uh, don't quote me on the, well, I guess you are, I guess I am being quoted because I'm on a podcast, but, um, you know, in some First Nations, we're talking about that First Nation receiving one third, one third of what the provincial uh, schools may be receiving, right? And, and so just think about this for a second, right? I mean, I'm an, I'm an educator, right? So this is something that's my jam and so my passion. When we're talking about Indigenous education in Canada, okay, let's just do a little a quick little rewind here, okay? Prior to contact, Indigenous communities educated, right? Educated children holistically, right? Through experiential learning, through ceremony. We had our own kind of milestones, our own kind of grammar of schooling, our own standards, right? That were largely based in inherent gifts and cultivating those gifts and helping children children grow in community, right? When thinking about error or thinking about, um, you know, percentage or demerit points, those were things that were foreign understandings to our people, right? It was it was all about growth and all about, um, you know, children, children experiencing. And so th then let's insert um, you know, more kind of missionary type education leading up to residential schools, right? It's a completely different agenda, right? It, it's prioritizing a specific type of work style and work ethic that is not in congruence with Indigenous ways of knowing or Indigenous ways of learning. We're talking about, oh, there's a right answer, there's a wrong answer, um, not group learning, very rote um, instruction, memorization. Um, you know, students often learning um, from one specific modality, which was being, um, you know, being lectured or just listening to a teacher speak or, or needing to read and, and not out learning on the land, not learning from ancestors, not learning from traditional knowledge keepers or, or family, right? So, um, the way in which students needed to learn, um, you know, in these more colonial uh, settings or institutions was not in congruence with with traditional way of learning. Right. And then so then let's fast forward, you know, even closer to today. Right. Um, you know, residential schools, you know, closed down in the early 90s, right? And so then we move to maybe a day school setting, okay? Then we move to kind of what's in place in, in the modern day, which is still a very colonial system, right? Um, when needing to adhere to specific standards, um, those standards are largely not the agenda of, of the First Nation. And, you know, the funds that, that are attached to that, right? When, when you think about who your funder is, right? The, the priorities of that funder are going to be very, very important and, and able to be in order to be able to keep your institution or your learning environment afloat. Now, having said that, 
Uh, are there communities that have completely um, like designed their own grassroots learning environments and institutions? Absolutely, absolutely. It's been done here at Six Nations, right? We have two um, two private schools, a Gowanio private school, which you know is a K through twelve learning institution um, where. Mohawk and Cayuga language immersion is is the priority. Um, we also have Everlasting Tree School, um, which actually, funny enough, is just across the road from me, uh, which is a newer school which follows a lot of um, you know strategies and and teachings from the Waldorf method, kind of with a blended um, with you know Haudenosaunee. Um, kind of like teaching and learning traditions. And so really, really interesting work going on there. Um, you know, having having said that, uh, when thinking about, you know, across Canada, um, if schools are still receiving, our First Nations, you know, Inuit Métis schools, still receiving just, just a fraction um, of what provincial schools are receiving, how can those priorities be, be actualized, right? Because here, we're not just talking about 21st century skill acquisition, right? We're talking about a whole bunch more. We're talking about, yes, we want our students to have 21st century skills so that they can go ahead and, and choose whatever it is, the path they want to. If they want to become a doctor, if they want to become a coder, if they want to become a software developer, if they want to become a teacher of the language, if they want to, to go into trades, um, if they want to become an entrepreneur, right? We need to make sure that those pathways are accessible for our students and the, that they have mentors who can support that work as well. So one, there's 21st century skill acquisition, which I think is a conversation that schools across Canada, non-Indigenous or Indigenous are having, right? We want our students, all of our students, to have access to those different pathways. In addition, we're talking about language and ceremonial and cultural revitalization, right? And that's not something as simple as we're going to teach our students how to introduce themselves in the language by eighth grade, and then we've done our job. No, that's not reclamation. That's not revitalization, right? That, that's a start. That's something that I, I feel our youngest learners uh, should be able to do. But then how do we build upon that? So then when our students are, are, are you know, leaving eighth grade or leaving 12th grade, you know, what is it that they're, they are able to do in the language? Are they able to have conversations with our more fluent elders, right? That would be such a dream of mine to walk into the arena in the summer to watch lacrosse and you just see, you know, kids kind of jabbering back and forth in Mohawk or in Cayuga. And that's just a a common thing that you see, right? Or you see like a generational thing where it's a grandfather having a conversation with their granddaughter, like largely in Cayuga as like, that is just the go-to, right? That that's what we envision is, is language reclaiming space and reclaiming time. Right. And, and so there's, there's a dollar amount attached to that, right? It, it's unfair for us to just assume, you know, that our language teachers are just going to go home after their eight-hour workday and create resources because it's the right thing to do. Because guess what? They will. They will because language revitalization is so important to them, but it should not be our expectation, right? We need to fund that resource development and that reclamation uh, and revitalization appropriately, as we would other languages that are prioritized in Canada. Yes. So those are, there there are additional priorities, right? There are different priorities that, um, that we really need to think about. And you know, I'm not saying the federal government or provincial government or whoever it is has all the answers because this is largely unchartered, you know, kind of waters and territory. So that's why we need to work together in good relationship uh, to think about what it is our end goals are and how it is we work together uh, to 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 achieve those end goals, right? To 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 come to a place where where we feel like all of the, those priorities can be can be supported because. As the funding models exist right now, uh, it, it it's not um, it's not sufficient. Yeah, and working together is, I think, the key here. And it's just, you know, everything you're saying about language and how often we take language for granted, it just really makes me think, you know, and it's very eye-opening. So I thank you for that. And it also reminds me of what uh, Mi'kmaq elder Albert Marshall talks about as two-eyed seeing and this idea that we are going to mm-hmm. be seeing from one eye the strengths of indigenous knowledges and ways of knowing and from the other eye take the strengths and 
um, you know, ways of knowing of Western knowledge and together put them together for both of our eyes together so we can see um, metaphorically and benefit from both of those different lenses, both the indigenous ways of knowing and the Western ways of knowing to really benefit us all. And I think that's really what you're talking about as well. So that resonates a lot for me. And as we, you know, come to um, an end of our conversation, if there's anything else that you want to say that we haven't discussed, any resources or places for listeners uh, to check out, to learn more, um, please go ahead and share. Right. Yeah. So I, I again, just want to say Nyawa and thank you for, for the time today and for the discussion. And, and yeah, I think something I, I really want to leave folks with um, is, you know, to really, really approach this work, um, you know, as, as we would say in Mohawk, you know, with Gatni Golio, with a good mind, right? And what I, what I mean by that is when approaching this work with a good mind um, is to not only, you know, be orienting yourself, you know, to have a good mind to, you know, in order to take in from in information or to learn about Indigenous peoples, but also to have a good mind in relation to yourself, right? And to be kind to yourself. Uh, some of these histories are really traumatizing, um, are really heavy, and, and knowing yourself and how to take care of yourself when learning about this, I think, is of utmost importance. Um, you know, I think you would be hard-pressed to find, you know, an Indigenous person who is like, yes, I want non-Indigenous people to learn about this, and I want them to feel the pain that we feel, and I want them to feel sorry for us, and I want them to, you know, to be in this state of mind where they're just they're just angry and upset. That that's not the mission, right? That's not the goal here. And so, you know, approaching this work with, with a good mind, not only, um, you know, looking outward, but also looking inward, I think is is something that's really key and really important. And um, and then lastly, in terms of resources, I think there there's a number of of great things. Um, you know, Shaliza earlier you mentioned uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's uh, 94 Calls to Action. I think that's a really great place to start. The, the website itself um, includes the the 94 Calls to Action and action, uh, as well as their their report, but also you know a number of interviews uh, that have been done. Uh, with with survivors. And I think that's something that's really important. Oh my goodness, again, I'm going to mention Chief Dr. Robert Joseph, his ears must be burning, mentioning him for a third time on uh, Reconciliation Canada, um, that uh, is an organization that he leads. And uh, that organization, they, they have plenty of online resources uh, to check out. Uh, once you see a video of him, you'll you'll totally understand my fangirling. Okay, he's just so such a beautiful and gentle and kind soul, and uh, and so he he is on there. So you should definitely check it out. And then I think one more organization that I would highlight, and this is an organization that has been formed uh, more recently, you know, in the past five to seven years, is the the Gord Downey and Cheney Wenjack Foundation. And I'm just always, uh, when, whenever I go check out their website, it always seems like they're engaging and, and getting deeper into the work, which I think is really, really lovely and beautiful. Uh, some of the things that, that they prioritize is, you know, some of their, they even have legacy schools in, in which they are working with schools, you know, across Canada, um, who are, are committed to engaging in that truth and reconciliation. For the legacy schools, there there's curricula uh, that can be can be utilized, and so maybe that's something that your school or your district uh, may be interested in in engaging with. And uh, you know, this is an organization that's doing a, doing a lot of really great work when it comes to truth and reconciliation. And um, and then lastly, one resource I actually would uh, would suggest, and and it kind of reaches back to an earlier point I said about the narrative, right? This kind of narrative, um, you know of how it is we should be viewing indigenous peoples and how it's been a distorted narrative, you know, over, over time. And it, I didn't really get too deep into this, but it reaches back to, you know, point of contact and the doctrine of discovery. And there's a documentary and I promise you it is not like, 
a yawner. It is a really well done documentary by the Anglican Church of Canada, um, all in an effort to engage in reconciliation. And it's about the doctrine of discovery. And so I, w- I would invite folks to, to check out uh, that documentary. It centers a lot of Indigenous leadership, a lot of Indigenous voices, um, you know, talking about um you know, the dispossession of lands and, and all the way up to, uh, you know, modern day and, and how that that doctrine still very much um, is alive, um, you know, in our current, you know, colonial, uh, you know, structures. And so I, I would invite folks to, to check out that resource uh, as well. Thank you so much, Heather, for all the resources. We'll put them in the show notes. You know, one of Bob Joseph's books that I think is a great start as well is 21 Things You May Not Know About the Indian Act. And we'll put other you know, resources in the show notes. So thank you so much for that. Um, Heather uh, Niawen, I'm really appreciative of your friendship, of your uh, time today, and I'm always learning something new with you and from you. Uh, for folks who do want to learn more as well, uh, part of my journey of uh, allyship, reconciliation, and learning is uh, working with Heather to learn about treaties and my own responsibility and, um, you know, connection or complicity to settler colonialism. So in that vein, please join Heather and I in community on September 28th at 2021 for a lunch and learn on building Indigenous solidarity through treaty responsibility. This will be an online workshop slash, uh, you know, community session that you can join to learn more in preparation for the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. More details for this are on our website and in the show notes. Uh, Thank you so much, Heather. I hope you have a wonderful day and I can't wait to see what's next and I can't wait to read your research and implement it uh, in the classroom as well. Great, and thank you, Nyawa Shaliza, always for for the questions, for the space, and um, and for your your dedication and, and your your passion to decolonizing, to being anti-colonial, and um, you know I really really value your your friendship and your allyship. So uh, Nyawa, and uh, looking forward to continuing to do really important work together. Thank you so much, Heather. Have a great day, everyone.